You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. John chapter 17. We are going to take a look at the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. We often think of uh, the Lord's Prayer as Matthew 6, uh, where he says, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But actually, John 17 is the Lord's prayer. And, and we have here, recorded by the gospel writer John, of the actual words that Jesus prayed. And so we want to take some time and look at one particular paragraph of this prayer in relation to where we've been over the last several weeks talking about our church, where our church is going, uh, the, the many changes that we've made through COVID, the changes that are coming, and uh, we want to be a church that's on mission. We want to be a church that is a, a family of Jesus followers on mission together. So there's something that Jesus prayed about in this prayer, I think, that fits in perfectly with our church and, and where we're going. So let's pick it up in verse 20. Chapter 17 of John, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, he's talking about the 12 disciples, actually the 11 that are right in front of him, that those who will believe in Jesus based on the ministry of the 11 disciples. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, we pause this morning. We say thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Father, this week we're going to have the opportunity to gather with family and friends and to just to collectively say thank you. Thank you for your abundance. Thank you for what you have placed in our lives. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the goodness and mercy. Thank you for the provision. Thank you, Father, that you have provided food for us. You have provided all that we need. And Father, we are deeply grateful for all that you've given us. Father, we also recognize that there are people this week and maybe sitting in this room and watching online that are not looking forward to the holidays. And Father, it may be because that they've lost a loved one very close to them over this last several months or years. And Father, the holidays bring all of that back up. And Father, while the rest of the world is rejoicing, while the rest of the world is enjoying each other's company, for many, they'll be as alone this week as they've ever been. So Father, we want to pause this morning. We want to say, Father, and ask that you would touch them, that you would bless them, that they would cast their eyes upon you. That, Father, they're never truly alone. And, Father, I pray that you would bind up their broken heart. And for the families that get together this week as they look around the table and there's one missing, I, I pray that in that moment they would remember your goodness. And for that loved one that was ready to leave, that loved one that has crossed from this life into your presence, that, Father, they would rejoice and they would be thankful that you have made a way for us. Father, thank you for your word, for the beauty and the perfection of it. And we ask that you guide us in it this morning. We ask all this in the strong and powerful name of our Savior. Amen. There's a word, a Greek word, that I've used several times. I've always tried to explain it when I use it, but this morning, it kind of lends itself very well to the text we're going to be looking at, and it's the Greek word koinonia. And the word koinonia means basically to gather, gather together in one purpose, to gather together with a mutual relationship. Now, what's interesting about that Greek word in Greek culture when the church began to use it 
was in Greek culture, the word koinonia just basically meant any kind of gathering. So you could have a gathering of philosophers, you could have a gathering of merchants, you could have a gathering of business leaders, and simply they're all there for a common purpose. But as far as them being uh, together as one, that was really not how the word was used. Well, the New Testament writers begin to use that word, and what they actually did is they took that word and kind of redefined it. So that later in church history, when the word koinonia was used, people saw it as something connected to the church, not something connected to public life. The first time that it's used in, in, in relation to the church is in Acts chapter 2. Luke writing the account there of the earliest model of a New Testament church that we can find. As a matter of fact, the church didn't exist prior to Acts 2. In Acts 1, we see Jesus telling the disciples to go gather in an upper room. They would watch Jesus ascend back into the clouds, back to the right hand of the Father, and they would go wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Once the Holy Spirit filled them, they, they spilled out of the upper room. Peter begins to preach. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And in Acts 2, 41 through 47, we see that they were baptized. We see that they were taught the doctrine, teachings of the Bible, teachings of Jesus. We see that they begin to do life together. And there, Luke uses the word koinonia, fellowship, in connection with the local church. Now, from that time on, throughout the rest of Scripture, especially in the epistles, that word is used over and over again to talk about this common bond of people who followed Jesus within the confines of the church. And so as that word is kind of repurposed, the rest of the world begins to see koinonia as something connected to the church, that we are gathering not just because we all believe in Jesus, certainly that's why we're gathering. But we're gathering at a deeper level than just kind of coming together as a bunch of strangers who happen to agree about some things about Jesus. The idea of koinonia, the idea of fellowship within the church, and this is going to blow your mind, but the idea of fellowship hasn't always just been connected to the idea of love and connection, but it often has to do with, well, casseroles and covered dish suppers. You know, if you're going to say fellowship in the local Baptist church, the first thing that comes in your mind often is a big old casserole and a big old table full of food, and we get together and, and we have a meal together. And while certainly that's part of fellowship, koinonia goes much, much deeper than that. Also, and, and Megan alluded to this just a few minutes ago, about that one another, that phrase one another. That phrase is used 51 times in the epistles. And it talks about the local church being together, not just together under a banner of Christianity, but under the banner of love, intimacy, mutual relationship for a common purpose. This prayer that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus is praying specifically about oneness. And while he doesn't use the word koinonia, the concept of fellowship, the concept of intimacy, the concept of mutual relationship under the banner of Christ is certainly there. This text that we have in front of us this morning, John 17, is one of the most beautiful sets of verses in the entire Bible. Now, we have a lot of recorded prayers. The Psalms, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see prayers recorded that Nehemiah prayed, that Ezra prayed, that David prayed. But there is something very unique about what we see in John 17. As a matter of fact, when you read John 17, sometimes it's difficult to read. As a matter of fact, just a few moments ago, as I'm reading, I kept getting tripped up in the words. And it's because that Jesus, it appears as though Jesus is repeating himself, and yes, he is. But what he's saying, and the nuance of what he's saying and what he's praying on behalf of the 11 that are in front of him and all disciples who would come after them, it's profound, it is beautiful, and it is deep. As a matter of fact, there was a guy by the name of Philip Melanchthon. He was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He said this about John 17, quote, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son to God himself. And I would agree with that. So what we're going to look at this morning is the beauty of, of this prayer and just how deep that Jesus prayed on your behalf. If Jesus is praying for you, and Jesus was praying specifically for you, if you are a follower of Jesus, this prayer that Jesus prayed was for you. It's almost as though Jesus was looking down through the corridors of time, and he saw you. He saw the moment that you put your faith in him. He saw the moment that your life would change. And as he's praying this prayer, 
just uh, literally hours before he's going to be arrested. We don't know exactly where Jesus prayed this prayer, but he's praying this prayer hours before he's going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and that he's going to be tortured and placed on a cross. I have an idea of where I think Jesus was. It's just, it's just my, really it's my opinion. If you back up into John 14, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And they, they have broke bread together. They've passed the cup together. Uh, Jesus has washed their feet in that upper room. And then at the end of chapter four, 14, Jesus says this, rise, let us go from here. Now there's a lot of controversy as to whether Jesus actually left the upper room or whether he remained there and they just kind of continued to talk and Jesus continued to teach. And what we see in John 15, 16, and 17 actually occurred in the upper room. But I actually think that Jesus and the disciples left the upper room at the end of chapter 14. And I believe that they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem because Jesus is headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, where Jesus was in the upper room versus where he's going in the Garden of Gethsemane is a pretty good walk through the streets of Jerusalem. It would have taken him by uh, the temple. It would have taken him through the gate that leads to the outer city and the outer walls, and it would have led him down through the Kidron Valley, and on the other side of the Kidron Valley is the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus, I believe, is walking through the city streets, and I believe at John 17, he's actually very close by the temple. Maybe, maybe actually just outside the temple. And I think it's right here where he prayed this prayer, and John was close enough to hear it and be able to record it for us, and it is some of the most beautiful words that come out of, uh, of Jesus' mouth. And if Jesus is praying for you, and he prayed for you then, I don't know about you, but I want to know what he prayed. I want to know what he prayed for me at this place where he knows that he's going to be suffering. So let's look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, Jesus starts out at this point in the prayer, and he says that there are going to be people who believe in Jesus as a result of the 11 who are right in front of them. And these 11, and through their testimony, and through what some of them will write, John, Peter, James, that they're going to write and, and give their testimony of what they experienced with Jesus, and that there will be many, many people who will come to faith in Christ as a result of the truth that they teach. He says, who will believe in me through their word, in verse 21, he says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The first thing that Jesus prays about is unity among his followers. I can remember at age 10, and I remember it like it was yesterday, I can remember at age 10, the church that I grew up in was going to have a business meeting on a Sunday morning. Now, we don't do business meetings on Sunday mornings, not because of the issue I'm getting ready to share with you, just because on Sunday mornings, we want to keep our focus on worship. We want to keep our focus on God's word. We want to keep our focus on coming together. But on that morning when I was 10, the church that I was attending, and my parents still attend, decided that they needed to have a business meeting. Now, I don't, under, I don't know what the controversy was. I can tell you this. It wasn't some big doctrinal issue. I know my dad remembers it well. I don't. But I'll tell you what I do remember. I, were, I can remember distinctly the anger that was in that room. I, I can remember sitting on the end of the pew. And I can remember person after person getting up in that, in that business meeting during the morning worship service. And it was anything but worship getting up one at a time, and they are absolutely spewing venom and hatred towards the pastor, towards the deacons, one of which my father was serving. And I can remember the faces, I can remember the words, I can remember how I felt, and I can remember that in that moment, I'm, I'm in a church that's been telling me my whole life that the church is to be about love, and the church is to be about reaching people, and the church is to be about fellowship and, and, and coming together under the banner of Christ. But in that moment, it was nothing more than a big old fight. And I remember just how angry the room was. And as a 10-year-old trying to figure out what it all means to follow Jesus, I was really wrestling with it, and I still remember it to this day. I also remember what happened at the end. After about an hour of just absolute venom and arguing, 
And if I could go back and find out what the issue was, you'd be probably surprised. I had someone share with me after, after the service that, that he went through a similar situation, and their church was fighting about where the candles should be lit or not lit in the service. Can I just tell you that is absolutely lunacy? A church split over where the candles should be lit or not in the service? Folks, that is lunacy. Okay, there's something seriously wrong if that's what we're arguing about. But nonetheless, in that moment, at the end of that service, I remember over half of that congregation getting up and storming out. And among those people who left, because my family, my, my dad looked at me and said, you stay right where you are. We stay, stay right where we were. Over half the church gets up and walks out. And the people who walked out were kids that I was in children's ministry with, that I was friends with. And I watched their families walk out. And you, do you know, to this day, to this day, those people will not speak to me. If I see them in, in my hometown, I, I still remember the fact that we were friends. And whatever happened on that day, which probably was absolutely of no consequence biblically whatsoever, that there were friendships ruined, there were relationships broken. And can I say to you that that illustration, that moment, I'm sure you have stories that are very similar can I say to you that that is as far opposite of what Jesus is praying about in this prayer as you could possibly get. Churches have split over carpet color. They've split over janitorial services. They've split over whether to have a projector or not. They've split over the translation of Bibles. They've split over somebody got upset about something. And yet Jesus' prayer is loud in our ears. He says that just as the Father and the Son are one, that's the kind of oneness that we are to share with one another and to share with him. One of the things that makes this text so difficult is what we have here is Trinitarian theology, the theology of the Trinity. And while we could spend weeks talking about it, we still have a hard time wrapping our arms around this. The idea that, and what we believe as a church and what the Bible teaches, is that God the Father, the creator of the universe, is an individual he is God the Father, and all power, and all glory, and all majesty, and omnipresence, which means he's everywhere all at the same time, omniscient, which means he's all-knowing, but yet God being individual, he is also three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we have Jesus dying on a cross, we have God the Father turning his back on Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit that is given and lives inside of us. So we have three distinct entities here, but all three of them are one. And I know that all the illustrations that I could give you right now fall short. For example, you might have heard this illustration. Well, it's kind of like water. You've got water in liquid form, and you've got water in steam, and you've got water as ice. You've got, you got three different kinds of water, but they're all water. That doesn't really work. Let me tell you why it doesn't work. Steam is different than water, and water is different than ice. And yes, they're all three water, but their characteristics are different. Steam is hot, ice is cold. Get this about the Trinity. All three of them are exactly the same. Whatever you can say about God, you can say about Jesus, and you can say about the Holy Spirit. So the Trinitarian God that we believe and that we follow, that we trust, and we know that the Bible teaches, is a hard concept for us to get our arms around. But yet Jesus speaks about it, at least two parts of the Trinity right here. And what he says is this. He says, Father, you are in me, and I am in you, and that they may be in us with the same kind of unity that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share together. That's incredible. What kind of oneness are we talking about here? Well, again, we could talk about all of the oneness between Jesus the Son and God the Father. Let me just give you five really quickly. The oneness between the Father and Son, well, that oneness is a oneness of love. That both Jesus the Son and God the Father are described as being absolutely perfect in love. That no, no, no matter what you read about God the Father and his ability to love, it is the same with Jesus and how he lived out his life upon this planet. So there's a oneness in love. There's also a oneness in purpose. The Old Testament prophets tell us that that Jesus was intended to die on a cross long before the cosmos was ever hung in place. That long before anything was created, that there was a purpose among the Father and among the Son. 
that there would come a day where Jesus would lay down his life for sinners like you and I. So there's a oneness in purpose. There's also a oneness in truth. Jesus is described as the Logos, John 1. The truth incarnate, truth with flesh on. Jesus says in 14, John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. When we look at God the Father, he is described as absolutely righteous, no darkness, that God is perfect, he is truthful, and he is honest, and Jesus is exactly the same. There is oneness in truth. There's also oneness in mission, that Jesus sent as a missionary by God the Father, sent to be born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, to be conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, to not be in the line of rebellion and sin of Adam and Eve, that, that he, would, he would grow up, live a perfect life, he would display for the world exactly what God is like, but God sent Jesus on a mission, and that God the Father and God the Son were completely one in that mission. If you remember just hours after this prayer, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested there. And in that moment of, of chaos, Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear of the high priest, and the guy's name was Malchus. Jesus looks at Peter and says to Peter, Peter, put your sword up. Do you not know that I could call down angels? Do you not know that, that God could intervene? Do you not know that I could intervene in this moment and put an end to it? But that's not the will of the Father. All through the New Testament, we find out that, that, yes, the Jews and the Romans conspired together, but what we find out through Paul's writings is that it was God's will that Jesus die. It was God's will that Jesus be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there was oneness in their mission. Oneness in love, oneness in purpose, oneness in truth, oneness in mission, and here it is, oneness in destiny. What does that mean? Well, as we read on, we're going to find out that that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And in that place is the place of where God dwells and where Jesus dwells. And we're going to go there one day. So we have a destiny that God and Jesus has been providing for us. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that place that I'm going to prepare, I'm going to receive you into myself that where I am, you may be also. Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 was in the throne room of God, and he sees God high and lifted up, and he sees the train of God kind of filling the temple, and Isaiah falls on his face before God, and he says, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. What we find in the totality of the Bible is all of it is moving us towards a destination. All of it is moving us towards a reunion between us and our Creator, that God is going to restore what was lost in Eden. So we have this oneness between Jesus the Son, God the Father, and yes, even the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that this kind of oneness is the kind of oneness that should characterize the church. When I was uh, working on a two-year degree in the community college years ago, the uh, community college took us on a little field trip. Now, in my hometown, we have Tyson Foods, which is right downtown. So if you're driving through Wilkesboro, I don't know why you would be, but if you are, there may be that day where they're cooking the chicken and the whole entire city smells like fried chicken. That's a pretty good day. Or you could be driving through town when they're, you know, taking the lives of the chickens they just hauled in on the truck, and it's a totally different smell, not pleasing at all, right downtown. So they took us over there to tour the plant. I don't know if this was a good idea or not. Now, I grew up on a chicken farm, so I know all about that, but I'd never been in the processing plant. So they took us back in the chicken nugget department. Now, if you're getting ready to eat dino nuggets for lunch today, I apologize to you right now. And I'm not going to give you all the details. But we walk into this plant, and it's like chaos. And I worked in construction, and I worked in processing for a long time, but not in food processing. And there are conveyors going all different directions. And on those conveyor belts are these, these forms. There's, there's the, 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 the nugget line, and then there's the chicken tender line, and then there's the chicken patty line over there. And it's all coming out of the same vat. It's like this big, like, liquid gelatinous goo that squirted into these, into these forms, and it's going everywhere. There's thousands of nuggets and patties, and they're all going different directions. Some are going to be cooked. Some are being, have just been cooked, and now they're going to be flash frozen, right? Why am I telling you this? 
It's because when you looked at all that, the goal was is to have them all taste the same, look the same, cook the same, frozen the same, and in the same boxes. Not unity, but uniformity. There's a difference. Now listen, the church, the local body, we're not here to try to produce uniformity. In other words, we're not here trying to crank out, you know, everybody who looks the same, talks the same, acts the same, because we all come from different backgrounds. And one of the things I love about serving this church is we have a very diverse congregation, both ethnically and socioeconomically and every other way that you can put it, but we are a diverse group of people. And our role in making disciples, our role in helping you to grow up in Christ is not uniformity where everybody looks the same and talks the same, but what Jesus describes in John 17 as unity, as koinonia, as fellowship together. And I think the beautiful thing of the church, when it's working the way God intended it, is when you've got people from all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, all different skin colors, all different economic backgrounds, and God brings us all together inside this thing called the church. And here's the thing, to the shock of the world, it actually works. Because guess what? It's not working anywhere else right now. As a matter of fact, this world is as broke right now as it's ever been. We are being divided up in every kind of category. You're being labeled all kinds of things. And, and, and if, you, if you have enough labels over here, then you fit in with this little group, and you got enough labels over here, you fit in this group, but not this group. But what, if, what would happen if there was an entity on earth where we all came together regardless of our background, and we literally became one, not uniformity, but actual unity, where we actually love one another, we actually look out for one another, and it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, it doesn't matter how much money you've got in your back pocket, it doesn't matter if you had to ride a bicycle in here, you are treated the same as the one who drove in in a Mercedes Benz. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? What in the world go, what in the world look at that and go, what is that? I don't know what it is, but I want to be part of it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. That just as much as he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one, the church has been called to the same oneness. Here's the next thing Jesus prays about. Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. That, that troubled me. <laughs> this, this prayer, what Jesus says here, just really was difficult. It's like one of those verses you think you know it. You, know, you, you think you know what it says, then you get into it and you're like, man, I don't have a clue what's going on here. Boy, did I wrestle with this. And that particular verse I really wrestled with. What does it mean that Jesus has given us as his followers glory? Well, there's a few things I thought of immediately. Well, the glory of his presence, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. The glory of his word, the truth that we have. The glory of his spirit living inside of us. The glory of his power, the power of his resurrection, power of his ascension, the power that we see when he returns, the power that he gives the church. That's, that's a glorious thing. The glory of Jesus' leadership and the leaders that he raises up in the local body. I think that's a just a, a thing of glory. I think, I think the fact that we're preserved, which means that once we came to faith in Christ, we can't lose it. I think that's a glorious thing, but I don't, think, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. And here's why I don't think he's talking about that. He says, the glory that you have given me. What, what glory is Jesus talking about? Well, back up at the beginning of chapter 17, and I'll show you what he's talking about. So look at verse one of chapter 17. He says, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, all through the Gospel of John, he writes these words. The hour had not come. The hour had not come. The disciples are trying to uh, move things along, and Jesus would look at them and say, the hour hasn't come. But here at John 17, what does he say? The hour has come. What hour is he talking about? He's talking about his crucifixion. And he's saying that, that Father, your hour, your, your will, your purpose for me has come. So in that purpose, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, what does that mean for us? 
Well, what it actually does is it just puts a death nail through the idea that by following Jesus, we're, become, we're supposed to become prosperity-driven or we're supposed to receive all kinds of wealth and accolades because we follow Jesus on this earth. Jesus is actually saying the exact opposite. So what does it mean to receive the same glory that Jesus received? Well, it means to serve people the way he served them. And by serving people, serving broken people, it brings glory to God. And that is exactly what it means when Jesus says, I have given them the glory. What does that glory mean? Well, selfless service to other people. Jesus modeled this throughout his whole life. Jesus, as he's with his disciples, has a leper. Nobody wanted anything to do with a leper. And to the dismay of his disciples, Jesus walks right over and puts his arm around a guy with leprosy and heals him. I've talked to you before about all the places where Jesus touches people that no one else wanted anything to do with. Our society is moving at such a, a fast pace now. Our society is, is fine with using people and abusing people, but loving people, that's, that's a whole different ballgame. We are perfectly fine using and abusing people to get what we want, but as soon as we get what we want, we throw them aside as though there's something to be used, not a person who bears the image of God. Jesus says that to, to have his glory is to run towards those people, and Jesus did exactly that over and over and over again. Even the 12 that he called to his side were 12 that you would have never picked. And the fact that Jesus in the upper room would wash their feet, the fact that Jesus would love them the way he, he loved them in spite of their own, well, foolishness and anger at times. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Now for Jesus, it culminated in what? His death on a cross. Philippians 2 says that he lowered himself to the part, to the place of a doulos, a, a bond slave servant. And that he, that he dies on a cross at the will of the Father, for the whole purpose of serving humanity in such a way that says to the rest of the world, I love you, and I'm willing to lay down my life in a painful, horrible, embarrassing way so that you may know that the Father loves you. So Jesus served his whole life and went after people that everyone else forgot about, and it culminated in a cross. And Jesus says right here, that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. You wish that that glory would be, well, wealth and fame and prosperity, but that's not what we see in Jesus' life. It's not what we see in the 11. It's not what we see in the epistles. What we see is God's people suffering all to bring glory to God. You'll never have to bear a cross. You'll never have to bear a physical cross. But you know what Jesus said to us? He said to us that if we're going to follow him, we have to do what? Take up a cross, not a physical cross, not a literal cross, but a cross that says to the rest of the world, I'm going to love you in spite of yourself. I'm going to love you and I'm going to serve you even if you hate me. That I'm not going to return hate for hate. I'm not going to return the same words you're throwing at me to get back at you. No, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. And that's not what it means to be one with the church. To bring glory and honor to the Father means that we serve even when it hurts. Did you know that your greatest growth in Christ comes at the same time you've gone through your greatest suffering? I wish it could be different, but it's not. The times that you grew up in Christ the most, the times that you felt him the closest, the times that you felt like you were right where Christ wanted you just happens to be the very time that you were suffering the most. Now, now prove me wrong on that. I don't think you can because it's true in my life and it's true in yours. So if you're going through a valley of suffering right now, this is the moment that Christ is going to do some of the greatest work in your life. So Jesus prayed for our oneness. He prayed that we would share in his glory, share in his service, share in his sacrifice. And he also prayed in verse 23 about our maturity and our mission. Look at verse 23. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus says here, and it sounds like he's saying the same thing again, and he is in, in one sense, but I want you to notice that one phrase that he uses there is a little bit different. He says perfectly one. 
he's talking about another, another idea, another concept, although he's still talking about that oneness. When he says perfectly one, what he's talking about is that we may be complete, that we may grow up, that we may be mature, that we may be deeper in our walk with Christ today than we were when we first met him. So, so Jesus prays on your behalf that as you follow him, as you take up your cross, and as you, you are plugged into a local fellowship and you become one with that fellowship called the church, that you will grow up and you will mature. And that through that, the world will see that the church really is different. How is that supposed to happen? How is it possible that people will believe in Jesus as a result of our oneness and our maturity? Well, when Jesus ascends back to the Father, he says to the disciples, before he ascends back to the Father, he says to the disciples that I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to live inside of you, and you're going to do greater things. Now, he says that in the previous chapters here in John. And then later on, he ascends back to heaven. But before he does, he says to his disciples, now, you go be my witnesses, start in Jerusalem, and then go to Judea, then Samaria, and to the uttermost. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples then and to all disciples since, that since Jesus lives in us, that's what he's already said, that Jesus is in us, we are in him, and together we are in the Trinity, the Godhead Trinity, that we are to go out and we are to incarnate Christ to a, to a lost world. In other words, Jesus lives in us and we are to take that Jesus and live in the world. And the way Jesus talks about it here is the oneness and the love that we share together is what tells the world that we're different. So what does it tell the world when a church splits over a candle? What does it tell the world when we have church after church after church starting another church because they couldn't get along in this church and then they go over to that church and then they start another church and then that church splits and then half of them leave and go start something else. What does that say to the world? I'll tell you what it says. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the opinion they have at that moment. Well, if they're fighting in there just as much as I am at work, why would I want to blow my Sunday morning there? It's a pretty good, pretty good answer, is it not? And I run into this answer quite a bit. As a matter of fact, it's not, I'm not embarrassed to be a pastor. Trust me when I tell you, I love what God's called me to. But I'll tell you this, when I'm in a room full of people that I don't know, I don't just stand up in front of everybody and go, hey, guys, I'm a pastor. Because oftentimes what it does is it shuts down my opportunity to even have a conversation about Christ because everybody begins to form opinions about who I am before they even get to know me. And oftentimes those opinions are formed by some bad experience they had when they were a kid, 10 years old, just like me, sitting on the end of a pew. Some of you have those. Some of you won't come to a membership meeting here. Because you're afraid that every time we get together for a membership meeting, it's a fight. And let me tell you, it's not. <laughs> Never has been. Not one single time in almost nine years of serving this church have we ever had any of that in any of our membership meetings. And what a blessing that is. The world looks at the church and goes, if they can't get along, and they say they follow Jesus and Jesus is about love, then why do I want to be there? It's a good question, isn't it? He prayed for our maturity, and he prayed for that maturity to then translate into mission. That people would see us differently. That there are a, a diverse group of people who can come together, actually love one another, actually look after one another, actually take care of one another in a setting that is not a corporation or a ball game or any other entity that we gather with. No, the, the church, the called out ones, are called to be in koinonia, love relationship with one another, where we look out for one another. And then finally, I want you to see what he prays for in verse 24. He says this in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. Now, if you look back through the Old Testament, you'll find that there's a whole lot of times where big things happen on mountains. You got, you got Moses up on a mountain, and there's a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed. 
Later on, that Moses will be on another mountain, and God is speaking to him, giving them the law. You got some amazing events that happen on mountains. Well, here at, at one point in Jesus' ministry, in the latter part of Jesus' ministry, he takes these three men, and he goes up on a mountain. Now, I don't know if those three men, because they were Jewish men, got excited about that, or if they were even thinking about it. I would think they were, but maybe they weren't. I don't know. But they get up there, and everything changes in a single moment in time. Jesus leaves those three kind of to themselves, and then Jesus goes a little further up on the mountain, and then all of a sudden, the full glory of who Jesus is is revealed. Now, in the Old Testament, we know there were times where leaders would ask to see God. Moses came as close as anybody would. But the idea of, of a human being being able to see God in all of his glory, you can't handle it. They couldn't handle it. The idea that, that we could see God in all of his power and all of his beauty, that, that we simply in our flesh could not handle that. We would, I don't know, explode or disintegrate or something. You just can't, you can't handle it. So Jesus being fully God, as we've already talked about, that in Trinitarian theology, that whatever you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. But in that moment, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and throughout his 33, 33 and a half years, Jesus had a robe of flesh. So we could look at him. His disciples could look at him. They could see him because he's right there. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus became less God. It just means that in that robe of flesh that he took on, that, that that veil there, that power of God was kind of veiled by that flesh. But up on that mountain, and we call it the Mount of Transfiguration, in that moment, the flesh was pulled back for a moment. And the glory and the power and the majesty of God was on display. And those three disciples are shaking in their shoes. They are blown away. So much so that Peter says afterwards, hey, let's build a temple. Let's build some tabernacles. Let's build some altars up here. Because there's nothing greater than being right here in this moment and seeing Jesus with all of his glory and all of his power. Well, Jesus in this prayer, when he could have prayed about any myriad of things, Jesus prays that he's looking forward to the time where we'll all be gathered together, his followers gathered together at one place where they could see him and all of his majesty and power without a veil of flesh between us. Now, why would Jesus be praying that at this moment? Because in just a few hours, he's going to be arrested. In just a few hours, Judas, one of his own, is going to lead the soldiers directly to him. Judas is going to walk up and kiss him on the cheek to identify him. And at that moment, Jesus is going to be arrested. The beatings is going to begin. The hair being jerked out is going to begin. The spitting and the yelling and the, and the, and the evil is going to be thrown at Jesus in full force. And Jesus knows that. So guess what he does? In this moment, he looks right past the crucifixion. He looks right past this cup of wrath that he's going to take on himself. And guess what he's looking at? He's looking at a time in the future where there's going to be a big old banquet table. And there's going to be a time where all people of faith who put their faith in him are going to be gathered together and there'll be no people there sick. There'll be no people there struggling with cancer. There'll be no people there who've just gotten cussed out by somebody. There'll be nobody there struggling under the weight of sin and brokenness. Everyone there would have been delivered by Christ in that kingdom, in that moment, and Jesus is going to sit down and there's going to be laughter. And there's going to be joy. And there's never going to be any more division. And Jesus looks past all the suffering that he's got to face. And he looks at that moment when all are gathered together. And in this prayer, he says, Father, I can't wait for that day. Because he knows that then within the next 24 hours, he's going to suffer unlike anyone has ever suffered. And I wonder if in our oneness as a body of Christ, that that's not what we're called to do as well. I know that some of you right now are suffering. I know that some of you right now are going through some really hard stuff. Some of you have lost loved ones, people you love dearly in the last 12, 18 months. Some of you have lost people to COVID. Some of you have lost people to sickness. And, and I, see you, I see you post on Facebook about the pain and the hurt that you're going through, and I get it. I understand that because I've went through that myself. But Jesus says that in our oneness in this fellowship, that collectively, not only are we to love one another, look out for one another, but collectively we're to look past the suffering of this present world 
and look forward to a time where we're all going to be gathered together. If your loved one who died, died in Christ, then yes, the pain is real. I get that. But they're doing as well today as they've ever done. And Jesus prayed at this moment that we would all be gathered together just as he had promised we would. And Jesus finds strength in this prayer to face what he's going to face. And I believe that if we look past all of our hurt, all the pain, all the mess that's going on in our world, we look through all of that. Paul said it this way. Paul says, I run the race. I'm running the race because I've got the finish in view. I see the finish line. I see where this all ends up. So I'm going to keep my eyes on the finish line. I'm going to keep my eyes on that moment when we're all gathered together. And as long as I keep my focus there, all this other stuff I've got to go through, I'll bear up under it. Christ will give me the strength that I need to get through it. Jesus says that he desires that we all be together. And make no mistake about it, he's going to keep that promise. How do we live in oneness? How do we live this out? Well, I think the best way to live it out is to see the negative example, which I've already given you. I want so many churches do and fighting over things that make no difference whatsoever in the kingdom of God. And what's interesting about that is both those groups of people who are fighting in those churches believe they're right. And one of them may be. But you can be right and still be wrong. You can be right and fight for it and still be wrong and completely kill a fellowship and kill a testimony and kill a witness and completely go off off track. Jesus said, we are to be one just like he and the Father are one. There is no division between him and the Father. There is no infighting between him and the Father. There is no disagreements between him and, the him and the Father. They are perfectly together as one. People are looking for this kind of oneness. And they're going to the bar to find it. And you know what? For those who are hitting the clubs and hitting the bars, for a moment in time, they're actually finding some of it. They're finding acceptance. People who are sitting around a bar drinking themselves into oblivion don't really care about where you've come from. They just accept you right there. And as long as you've got some money to buy everybody around, you're, you're their best friend. Maybe it's through a sporting event. I've been to some big sporting events talking about, talking about oneness. You walk in one of those big stadiums and you're pulling for your team and it's a home game and you look around this stadium of 50, 60, 80,000 people are all wearing the team colors, are all chanting the same things, all singing the same songs, all doing the same things when a touchdown is scored. And, and in that moment, you can find some oneness. But just as soon as you walk out of that stadium and just as soon as you got to report back to work on Monday, it kind of goes away pretty quickly, doesn't it? You see... The church was set apart for this exact reason. Because the world is looking for this kind of oneness and they're not finding it. So what are we to be one about? Well, love, purpose, truth, mission, and destiny. We could throw a lot of other things in there. But those things flow right out of this text. That that is what the oneness between Jesus, the Son, and God the Father, that oneness... That's what they're one about. And church, we need to be one about the things that matter. We need to be one about the things that the Bible says we need to be one about. This, this is exactly one of the reasons why we, we're saying to you, especially our members, the folks who've been here for a while, that you take that, that church covenant that's out there, the one that's online, you go to our website, it's right there, and you read that, and what you're going to find in that document is oneness. This is what we're called to be. And we're inviting you to declare that I'm going to be one with those things, with this church body. Church, I, I, I understand that for some of you, you've been hurt deeply by pastors. Well, we fail too. You've been hurt by churches. Churches fail. For some of you this morning, you're guest here, and you're been on, you've been on that fence about whether, would I, do I really want to take some next steps with this church? Well, I know what happened back there. We're not perfect. High Park's far from it. But I'll tell you what you'll find here. You'll find people who love you. And church, for those of you who are part of this fellowship, that love needs to be felt as soon as they pull in the parking lot. As soon as they get out of the car, this fellowship needs to be connecting with folks. And, and let me just give you permission to do something. I know we get anxious about this, this kind of thing, but let's, let's, 
Let's just make a commitment. You've been coming for a while. You've been seeing the same faces, but you haven't stopped and said, you know what? I'm so-and-so. I've been part of this church for a few years. How long have you been here? I know we've, we've been sitting in the same service, but I've never invited my, I've never took the opportunity to tell you who I am. And there's that awkwardness there. Forget that awkwardness. If we're called to be one, we're never going to be able to do that if we're just continually being strangers to one another. It's okay. Don't worry about the awkwardness. Introduce yourself to somebody today. Let them know who you are, who your family is, who your kids are. It's okay. And let's move together in the oneness that we see Jesus praying for in John 17. Father, you're far better to us than we've ever deserved. And the fact that upon the blood of your son that you were able to build the ecclesia, the called out ones. And Lord, you said that it's upon this rock you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Father, oftentimes the way hell prevails over the church is not because of an outward force, it's an inward disagreement, an inward pride, an inward arrogance, where being right is more important than loving. That, That just being a face in the crowd is more important than actually getting to know one another and doing life together. So Father, whatever hurts and pains that this fellowship is carrying with them from the past, I pray, Father, that we could move together into the future as one. Our mission depends on it. A community that's lost and dying needs to see it. And they need to experience that kind of love. So, Father, may this fellowship be about those kinds of ministries, love, mercy, forgiveness, destiny, purpose. Father, we we ask that you would grant it just as Jesus asked for it so many years ago. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.